Hello, and welcome to this edition of Advice Worth Keeping, KPMG's podcast series in which we interview KPMG leadership and subject matter experts, as well as third-party and client executives and thought leaders on key global business, socioeconomic, and geopolitical market trends and topics. My name is Stan Lapique, the lead market research and thought leadership effort for the KPMG Global Management Consulting Practice, and I'm your host for this podcast series. And I'm pleased to have with us here today on Advice Worth TV, Mr. Michael Smart. Michael's a member of the Australia firm. He's a partner, and he heads up the Shared Services Outsourcing Advisory Group as part of Management Consulting. So, Michael, thanks for joining us here today on Advice Worth Keeping. Michael, as you know, we recently released KPMG's annual Top Trends and Prediction Market Research. We did a webcast on the 22nd of January talking about collectively, what do we see as some of the top trends in the market, positive trends, negative trends, what are organizations focused on, what are the top initiatives, what are some of the challenges they have with those initiatives. A lot going on, obviously, globally around talent and advanced technologies and cybersecurity, but also some of the traditional drivers of continuing to drive down costs. There's certainly a lot of concern around protectionism and populism and trade wars. So what we'd just like to do today is get your perspective in general as what you see as some of the top trends in the market for the coming year or two, and then also understand what's going on down in your market in Asia-Pac. Maybe to start out with, what do you see as some of the big things on your clients' collective plates this year? If I look at the start of the macro level, I guess from an Australian perspective, we've got something like 75% of our trade with Asia. If you look at trade wars going between China and US and Brexit and things like that, that really does flow down to the Australian organisations. On top of that, we've got a real commission that's taken place, which was an investigation into all the banking conduct in Australia. Uh, that's going to have a lot of ramifications for organisations. And then on top of that, we've got elections at both the national level and state level. So if you take those as a starting point, a lot of those flow down to the organisations which then if you look at what's on their mind, it really gets down into cost reduction for most of these, getting much more better operational improvement, resiliency, how to cater for these bumps that are coming up in the local and global economy, as well as then, you know, the usual threats around investing in cyber and so forth. Alongside that, you've then got the whole automation and digital intelligence which from our perspective, it's reasonably embryonic, but it's getting a lot of traction quickly. And that's causing a lot of problems for clients in how you integrate that type of initiative in with the legacy environment processes that are running alongside that. So everything you said resonates, but we've got our own specific issues and challenges here in Australia. So you mentioned a couple of interesting points around resiliency. What are some of the key things organizations need to do to increase their resiliency? Because I think that's something that's probably a common need globally for a lot of firms in these uncertain times and times where there's a lot of very fast-moving technology change. So there's economic need for resiliency, but there's also the need for resiliency relative to the technical environment. What are some things organizations are doing practically to become more resilient? So I think if you look at where the market's going, there's a lot more cloud-based services rather than on-premise. So a lot of legacy environments are being replaced by the newer, probably more resilient type services. As I mentioned, there's a lot of work around cyber going on, investing in that space. Clients are considering, they've got a set pot of money, they're considering where they invest that money. So most of it is going to, I would argue, risk management, but also 
the other half is then how do we grow the organisation and this is where you get into the challenge of, you know, I've got to support my legacy environment versus to invest in the newer AI, artificial intelligence. I don't think there's an easy answer there. It really comes back to each organisation, what their priorities are and where they see the most risks that they need to work on. Basically, what I'm saying is it's an organisation by organisation decision. That, that does make sense. And I think that probably the important takeaway then for the listeners is to make sure they are addressing some of those things that you just cited in the context of their own firm situation. You talked a little bit about the need for investment. You know, the top-cited initiative this year was, again, reduced costs, and it's been the top-cited initiative for as long as we've been running the survey, which goes back approaching 20 years now. So I always wonder, is there any more costs that can be taken out? But apparently there is. But how do organizations balance that perpetual drive for cost savings with doing some of the things you cited, like investing in cyber, like investing in some new technologies? So with automation, perhaps, investing that money could save money, but cyber is an investment. So how do organizations balance the need to cut costs with doing all the other things that are on their agenda? Mm, it's a very good question. Most organizations I work with, they still have a lot of inefficiency within the organization, particularly if they're operating on an international level. Things like processes, they might do a finance process in 10 different ways, they might have multiple systems. There's always ways you can get cost out through application of better technology, whether it's robotics, standardization, and so forth. If you take things like cyber, to me they're a necessity as opposed to a, an option. So these are basically around risk mitigation and protecting your asset as opposed to building the asset, if you like. So whilst a lot of costs can come down to various initiatives, you're still going to have to put a lot of other costs or invest a lot of money in things like cyber and you know, updating technology to stay ahead of the game. So it's a bit of a, a yin and yang, if you like, driving our costs on one side, but you've got to invest in another side to deal with the work we're living at the moment. Speaking of automation, obviously there's a lot of excitement in the market, strategically with machine learning and artificial intelligence, and perhaps a bit more tactically with robotics process automation, which can provide some of those cost savings that you cited and help to make processes more efficient. But one thing we've seen some clients is that there was a lot of enthusiasm. There's a lot going on with RPA in terms of pilots, but in some cases, really capitalizing on RPA and expanding those pilots into production has been proving a bit harder than anticipated. So where would you say you see clients at in terms of moving up to the maturity curve with something like robotics process automation? Because we're seeing the people, our firms are sometimes hitting the wall as they start to go from the pilots to the scale. I think there's a lot of organizations dipping their toe in the water and experimenting. So they set up an internal project to trial a couple of things. That's one way to go about it. Others are actually taking a much larger transformation of you and saying, if we're changing the whole why we operate process technology and so forth, how can we apply robotics into that process? So I think the ones that are piling, they're probably not getting the benefits they would expect. They're not seeing that because it's done on a side room and building into the whole end-to-end -end process from scratch. So once again, there's two types of organizations. They're the ones that want to try it and work with it, and then there's the ones that are actually doing it. And we're starting to see the rise in the ones that are enforcing it and got a proper governance and initiative to put these in. I think where it all comes unstuck is that with the robotics, the analytics and, and so forth around that, they've got to rely on a lot of the existing environments and processes to operate. In somewhat, they're constrained. In, you know, you've got to have proper data feeds. You've got to have data in a proper manner. You've got to have your processes set up so it can work with the boss and so forth. 
until a lot of that legacy environment and data gets remediated, it's very hard to get the efficiencies from the robotics just by putting in an existing environment. Okay, that makes sense. Michael, last question around talent and intelligent automation. Do you see that your clients in Australia have enough talent? Is there enough talent going around that everybody can invest in it and be able to take that transformational approach you described? And what's the role of the third-party service provider, in intelligent automation in general, but also talent? Because in certain camps, they say, well, with intelligent automation and RPA, clients won't need outsourcers anymore. They can get a lot of the benefits on their own. And another camp would say that you know the outsourcers are going to become even more important because of their skills and their talent. What's your take on the talent to do intelligent automation and to what degree an outsourcer is going to be a, a key player in supporting client efforts? I think this is probably the most interesting question, Stan. If we look at the robotics and artificial intelligence, we talk about talent shortage. I would start at start and say, well, what sort of talent do you need for this? Because a lot of these are embryonic in nature. They haven't taught them in universities. They haven't taught them in organisations. Where do these skills come from? So they're being developed over time, but they're not readily available. But you've got to ask them, do we develop our own talent? Do we invest in that? Or do we pay a lot to attract someone from another organisation that has some of those skills that we're looking for? But there's not that pool of talent out there because you know they're all learning as we go at the moment. Unless you know you're talking about programmers and those sort of things to program the bots, then probably there. I think on the other side, you've got legacy equipment. Now, that's not going to go away overnight. That's going to be around for a number of years at least. So you've got people that need to stay there and support the, the older technology and applications. Then they see that you know the shiny new toy on the other side, which is the robotics, and they want to go and work on that. So it's almost like how do we actually attract people to work on the legacy environment or retain them to work on the legacy environment is one of the challenges. And then if you look at the third-party outsource, most of the ones I know, they're supporting legacy environments. So they will continue to do that because, as I said, the banking system that are going to be around a long time. So there's no way they can get away from supporting that legacy environment. And yet they're also trying to push robotics and data analytics and IA and so forth. So... They've probably got the same internal challenges. How do we get people to support legacy versus the newer things people want to get involved in? And I, I don't think that's been solved yet, but it's certainly an issue that's going to be around for a while. So that's my take on it. Michael, that's an interesting point. I think the excitement around intelligent automation and advanced data and analytics, I think sometimes we forget about the fact that the legacy foundation is still obviously mission critical and it's going to be around for a long time. So that's, I think, an interesting perspective on that point. So, Michael, thank you very much for your time today. Great insights in general on what we should look for in the next couple of years and also good insight and good understanding for our listeners on what's going on in the Australia market. So thanks for your time here today. Pleasure, Stan, and thank you. And you can find the links to the items you referenced in the show today below the podcast. If you're online, of course, the URL for that is kpmg.com slash US slash podcast. That's a wrap. Thanks for your participation.